3: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish protocol or the Northern Irish protocol
1: fully implemented.
0: I'm going to miss
3: being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin.
0: We'll have a detailed look at the new document the UK says holds the key to solving the Northern Ireland protocol frictions. Why, apart from the reworking of a recently
3: signed international agreement, fundamental removal of the European Court of Justice's role,
0: would the EU say it's not minded to renegotiate? We'll have a look at what a former British DG of the European Commission thinks might make for a path to progress. And back
3: from the shadows, Dominic Cummings gives the BBC his version of the pressures that led to the protocol. But first, let's go back to Wednesday, and the British government's command paper, David Frost, was in the House of Lords, giving an overview of what was being proposed.
1: Put very simply, we cannot go on as we are. My Lords, we have therefore had to consider all our options. In particular, we have looked carefully at the safeguards provided by Article 16 of the Protocol. These exist to deal with significant societal and economic difficulties, as well as with trade diversion. There has been significant disruption to East-West trade, a significant increase in trade on the island of Ireland as companies change supply chains and considerable disruption to everyday lives. There has also been societal instability, seen most regrettably with the disorder across Northern Ireland at Easter. Indeed, the false but raw perception in the unionist community of separation from the rest of the United Kingdom has had profound political consequences. These are very serious effects which have put people, businesses and the institutions of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement under strain. It is clear that the circumstances exist to justify the use of Article 16. Nevertheless, my Lords, we have concluded that it is not the right moment to do so. Instead, we see an opportunity to proceed differently, to find a new path, to seek to agree with the EU through negotiations a new balance in our arrangements covering Northern Ireland to the benefit of all. It's a balance which needs to enable all in Northern Ireland to continue to have normal access to goods from the rest of the UK by allowing goods meeting both UK and EU standards to circulate there. And it is a balance which needs to normalise the basis of the Protocol's governance so that the relationship between us and the EU is no longer policed by the EU institutions and the Court of Justice. We should return to a normal treaty framework, similar to all our other international agreements, that is more conducive to the sense of genuine and equitable partnership that we seek. We did not anticipate the very purest application that will be required for some of its provisions, so uh, we've all learned from experience. Uh, it is. Uh, clear that we now know what is working and what is not and we believe the best way to resolve the situation is to try to negotiate changes and we we don't see what's wrong with that Uh, anyone would think that it was a highly unusual thing to to negotiate a treaty renegotiate a treaty of course it is not Uh... sean we've known
3: that something was going to come before parliament went into recess the british government has now outlined over the course of about 20 odd pages its assessment of the background, the problem, and we kind of have done the background to death in detail for a long time in the course of this podcast. Let's have a look at the problem
0: this command document has diagnosed. Well, the problem is uh, instability in Northern Ireland. First of all, in the business arena, it's making life more difficult for traders, uh, particularly people in goods into Northern Ireland, whether for retail or for processing as part of their manufacturing businesses. And it's also setting up political tensions uh, in the unionist and loyalist communities of Northern Ireland. That's the problem.
3: It does say, and it's quite pointedly says, both in Boris Johnson's preface and in remarks in Parliament by uh, David Frost, indeed, as we heard there, that the unionist community is wrong in thinking that their position in the union uh, is undermined, that obviously the implication being the Prime Minister would never have signed up to something that would do that. But they do accept and recognise that
0: there are some tensions around it as well. The two things are not mutually incompatible.
3: Right. Mistrust is another thing that's been diagnosed here. The the UK has identified that mistrust between themselves and the European Union uh, is a problem.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to invoke the name of Sherlock Holmes in this one, in that crude Americanism, <laughs> uh, but I, I'll pass on it on this occasion. No, there ain't no trust uh, there uh, between Brussels and London. London and Brussels, and I guess you can include Dublin uh, in with the Brussels crew as well. Uh, Trust is uh, at a very, very uh, short supply uh, over all Brexit issues, really, uh, but over the protocol issue in particular. And as you say, we've rehearsed the reasons for that many, many times uh, in uh, podcasts past. So maybe we should move on from uh, the problem. Uh, to the solution.
3: Indeed. So what what solutions are proposed here? Because as we say there are 20 odd pages of them. We don't pr- propose to read them in verbat- verbatim. But in summary, what, would, what are the proposed solutions to the frictions between uh, Great Britain goods moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland in the area of chilled meats, drugs, manufactured goods, etc.?
0: Well, let's maybe break it down a little bit further because they've got one big idea here. Uh, And that is the idea of a standstill, uh, which is to say we're not going to change anything more in regards to the protocol. Nothing new should change in it. Uh, The EU should put a freeze on the legal actions that it's taking and we should also freeze the situation as it currently is in order to give a little bit more certainty, they say, to uh, business people in in Northern Ireland. The grace period that's supposed to expire uh, at the end of September on chilled meat uh, imports into Northern Ireland that would effectively continue indefinitely uh, rollover indefinitely they've put no uh, cut off date on this and then all of the other grace periods that are due to fall over the coming months they would also continue indefinitely and this they say would buy uh, time and space without what they consider artificial deadlines coming up all the time uh, for the two sides to build trust and uh, renegotiate the treaty because that is what they want to do Uh, They've named about four or five articles so they want more or less completely rewritten uh, of the protocol and that's going to take time to do uh, and also some of the other solutions that are in there. The old technical solutions, my old bugbear about the computer systems uh, that are going to be necessary to underpin really any kind of protocol arrangement, whether it's the one that we have now or whether it will be one uh, that will be in any way uh, rewritten or reshaped or recast it's all gonna boil down to information technology and that just takes time to get set up as we know. Uh, So they want to have uh, this period of standstill. Uh, Now that has problems of course, because how long is a standstill for? Uh, The fear on the EU side is uh, that the British can more or less live with things as they are with the grace periods in place, Uh, the lack of checks, the lack of controls that are there now, and that if you had a standstill, It will be hard to come back from that standstill and that you would effectively be recognising in perpetuity the current situation uh, in Northern Ireland, which is one where the checks are not the checks that were signed up to originally.
3: Right. Although British officials that I was speaking to during the week said, look, even with the grace periods, there are frictions. That's why this command paper has come out now. We fear a situation whereby things would be worsened if the grace periods ended and we hadn't come to some resolution. So rather than go down the route that the EU has demanded, which is to implement the international and binding agreement to which the UK signed up, and indeed in the case of the protocol co-designed, there are too many problems that we've realised now post-signing this and it's time to have a look at fundamentally renegotiating the Northern Ireland protocol. There's no point in wasting our time going any further down this path uh, because it's only leading to frictions even outside the context of East-West relations between Ireland and the UK and indeed problems within Northern Ireland as well.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One is that, you know, maybe it is time to look at uh, some of the problems uh, and issues in the protocol. Uh, It was always accepted that um, there were issues to be resolved there. It was always accepted that there would have to be a way of sorting them out. And that way was built in uh, with the uh, Joint Committee and the Specialised Committees uh, that meet under it. There's a whole basically private bureaucracy between uh, the UK and the European Union that is there, at least on paper, to try and sort out issues like this as they arise. But that machinery, that mechanism, that bureaucracy it uh, doesn't seem to be working terribly well, it's hard to tell for sure because it's all goes on behind closed doors between uh, officials, um, you don't get the kind of oversight and insight into what's going on that you would get in normal
1: uh,
0: EU uh, internal business uh but it is there there is a mechanism there for trying to sort these things out so perhaps that w- is one way of, of going about it that would probably be the the preferred route of the european union mm. whereas the british are looking for a more fundamental rewrite uh of the uh protocol and, and in and some in ways in the views of some of the, the the eu side uh they're looking for essentially the stuff that they couldn't get in the original negotiation
3: yeah and but it, uh, as the commission said yesterday Thursday today being Friday as we record this that there isn't room for renegotiation of the protocol but again the British officials that I was speaking to said look they said this about the withdrawal agreement they did go back and revisit it when it had to be revisited they may you know it's our hope that they'll go back and revisit this and this arose as a result of a situation we should never have been in, basically. And the quote is, in a different negotiating context, such solutions would have been fully explored. These are kind of technical solutions to the border on the island of Ireland would have been fully explored and tested to find the right balance of arrangements to pl- apply in the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland. In other words, we would have done it better and we were at a relative disadvantage because that was never explored and
0: that's how the protocol came about. It's a bit hard to understand that though, isn't it? I mean, uh, what, what was their problem at the time? Were they running out of time? There was plenty of scope for extending the negotiations. As you re- we recall from many, many uh, podcasts past, the EU never thought it was realistic to try and uh, negotiate everything in the extremely short timelines that the British kept on pushing for. So who set the, the uh, deadlines? It wasn't the EU. Seeing as you mentioned it, what the pressures were and why did
3: they sign up to that at the time they signed up to it we, it was an interesting interview between the BBC's political editor Laura Coonsberg and Dominic Cummins, the former Eminence Grease of Downing Street, in which Dominic Cummings this is a, a, a four minute a four minute odd clip that the BBC published on their website and it's well worth a listen to. We have some of it here in which Dominic Cummings talks about how the protocol was born and the reason. It was necessary. Here he is.
2: At a key moment Ireland clearly decided for their own internal reasons that they wanted a deal. They wanted to see if they could get a deal and they were prepared to fudge a bunch of crucial questions about the border and basically punt them to the future.
3: Isn't the other reality though that Boris Johnson was willing to let down the unionist community in Northern Ireland in a way that Theresa May would never have conceived of? That was the difference.
2: Well, you could say you, um, you, you, you put it as let down, but I mean, for, essentially our, our view was that we were signing up to something in terms of Ireland that was deliberately opaque on both sides. You know, Without going into extreme detail on it, as you know, it's a very complicated question, and the deal that we ended up signing is kind of inherently self-contradictory in various ways. It says that Britain, that Northern Ireland is... Part of the British Customs Territory but then another part of it is defined in different ways fundamentally what happened is that the Irish decided that they wanted to fudge things and punt a bunch of questions post the deal and that suited us as well so it suited both sides to sign up to something that was not what either side really wanted and which punted difficult questions into the future to figure out later by the time we got to this situation, no, we had the, the, there was the constraints of previous decisions made by, made by the Theresa May government. You had Brussels red lines. You had the fact that we'd had no majority in Parliament. And you had a growing bandwagon for a second referendum. Right? So we had all these different constraints um, p- pushing in, pushing in on us. And we had to prioritise. And the priority was get a Brexit deal, or do no deal either. But one way or the other, solve the problem. What we are not going to do is just sit around for month after month after month saying, well, Ireland makes everything very complicated. Because everyone had been doing that for three years and that wasn't the solution for anything. Did you worry, though, about what it left behind? Yes, I did worry about 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 it, but I thought that the problems were enormously less than the problem of a second referendum and Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. And that's why I keep going on about this question of, of prioritisation. That was the fundamental calculation that me and other other uh, other people made, so how do you weigh up these different things? Yes, of course there are problems in Ireland as a consequence of the deal. The Irish knew that at the time. Brussels knew that at the time. We knew that at the time. We all knew that we were punting difficult questions in the future. And just... You know, this is international politics. That's why at the time it suited everyone to do that. Um, I still think it was definitely the right thing to do, from, from Britain's point of view, because we did solve the problem. We have packed Jeremy Corbyn off to the history books. Um, we have respected the referendum, and we have begun a process of getting the country on a on a better track.
3: Sean, I suppose listening to Dominic Cummings there, apart from saying it was all the Irish idea and the Irish feeling the pressure, he also acknowledges that there was some British pressure, which kind of sheds a bit of light on uh, the section, I think section 10 of this command paper. The UK thus faced a prolonged and damaging period of uncertainty if a solution could not be found. I mean, it wasn't so much that the UK faced that period of damaging uncertainty, but it seems that the Tory party was worried its electoral prospects faced a period of damaging uncertainty. And that was what would have informed perhaps some of the pressure behind Boris Johnson being willing to sign up to it.
0: Yeah, but again, the uh, electoral pressure that was there was uh, of their own creation. In fact, with a uh, fixed term parliament bill, In theory, they weren't, indeed, in law, they weren't under any pressure because there'd been an election in 2017. And uh, was there going to be an election? Well, as we know, there was, obviously, but it was an early election. And, you know, I never really got the sense over here that Jeremy Corbyn was going to sweep to power during that election campaign. Um, You know, I was here reporting on it. Uh, the Labour Party were as riven over Brexit as the uh, Conservative Party were. And you just didn't get a, a sense in the country that uh, Corbyn was going to win it. Um, certainly not when Boris Johnson came back with his oven-ready deal, which included, of course, the uh, the protocol on Northern Ireland. So again, this was all flipped around in a very short period of time in uh, October of 2019 in that space between the Tory party conference and his memorable uh, visit to the Democratic Unionist party and the uh, meeting between himself and Leo Varadkar uh, up on the Wirral in Merseyside, where they basically uh, cracked the deal open and then within a, a matter of days, uh, a deal had been produced and was then analysed by the Department for Exiting the European Union under uh, this then uh, Secretary of State Steve Barclay. Uh, they spelled out costs and issues and problems uh, that would be facing uh, Northern Ireland uh, under the protocol, including a lot of the customs checks and the costs and the VAT implications, and indeed pretty much everything that this command paper and Lord Frost and Brandon Lewis were saying in the House this week could not have been foreseen. Well, they were foreseen by lots of people, including the British government. What are they asking for in this
3: great maximalist ambition in which they're approaching the problem, I suppose, assess its chances for flying in in any way as a basis
0: for further talks with the European Union? They're looking for five changes, key changes or key areas of change uh, in terms of the protocol. Uh, One is this notion of what they call the burdens on trade within the uh, United Kingdom, uh, whilst also managing the risks to the uh, EU single market, or the real risks, uh, as they um, keep emphasising uh, in the document and in uh, statements. Uh, essentially, what they're looking for is a situation in which goods and food products made in Britain can circulate freely inside Northern Ireland without checks and with only the most minimal of paperwork. And you know, when we say paperwork, we're really talking about electronic uh, documentation. Uh, there wouldn't be really much uh, physical paperwork at all. Uh, it, they're saying that the full custom checks and uh, SPS the food and uh, veterinary safety checks uh, could only be carried out on goods moving through Northern Ireland that are destined ultimately for the European Union and in effect that means that would go on into Ireland and the Republic. Uh, secondly um, they uh, are talking about uh, saying that uh, the EU would have to ensure that businesses and consumers in Northern Ireland can continue to have normal access to goods from the rest of the UK on which they have long relied. Uh, And uh, again, we're back to the free circulation of goods uh, made in the UK there. But they're saying uh, that Northern Ireland should tolerate what they call different rules uh, or um, allowing goods made in the UK uh, that are regulated in the UK authorities to circulate freely uh, if and only if they remain in Northern Ireland, uh, there would also be some labelling issues there, uh, marking up goods for sale in supermarkets as being for Northern Ireland only. Although I seem to recall that they're supposed to be doing that anyway with the chilled meat products, uh, but haven't really done it. That was one of the complaints that we were hearing from the, uh, the EU side uh, a while ago. The third big change they want, and this one is a really uh, basically impossible ask of the European Union, is they want changes to the way the protocol is governed, uh, and in particular they want to remove uh, the European Court of Justice from any oversight role in it and also get the European institutions out of their oversight rules so that the uh, EU customs people wouldn't be on the ground in Northern Ireland doing their checks there. The EU vet office wouldn't be there. Uh, But most contentiously that the uh, European Court of Justice would not have a role in interpreting what is EU law. Now that's absolutely fundamental to the European Union. There's only one final court of appeal uh, or court of arbitration for EU law. The only people who can interpret EU law is the European Court of Justice. So if there are issues that concern EU law then they have to be decided on in the European Court of Justice. The British ask is to remove that uh, element from the protocol. That one I think is just going to be a non-starter. Absolute non-starter for the European Commission and uh, I think that was one of the things that caused that flat rejection uh, from the the Commission uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Fourth, they're saying that the uh, UK uh, would accept that new arrangements are going to only work if there is deep reciprocal sharing of data on trade close cooperation between trade authorities uh, and authorities in the eu and in ireland uh, they distinguish between the two but uh, couldn't say why when i asked them about this uh, and they would have inspection processes uh, that didn't collectively analyze uh, trade flows now again but we're back to is uh, this supposed to happen already about the computer systems Uh, Some of it is, but um, not reciprocal trade data as far as I know. Um, There is supposed to be uh, EU access to real-time customs data about what is moving into Northern Ireland. Uh, We know that there's been an issue with that because it's very difficult to set up these computer systems in such a way that segregates out uh, Northern Ireland data from the general UK data. So what's been happening up to now has been that uh, effectively an EU customs a uh, bureaucrat has been sat down in front of a lab PC with a British customs official beside them saying, you can look at this bit, but you're not supposed to look at this bit. Uh, you know, It's a duplication of staffing. It's not the automated process. Nobody t- thinks it's acceptable uh, or viable uh, for the long term at all. They have apparently just agreed an interim measure that will get them over the hump for the next few months. Uh, and then, as we've mentioned before, uh, they have proposals to have that kind of real-time access automated access uh, ready to go sometime next spring Uh, but again that's going to take a while this would be a different set of data arrangements and presumably you'd have to more or less start from scratch and uh, build out a new system there but also this issue of reciprocal data flows uh, and data sharing Um, i asked what was the actual reason for that they couldn't really come up with a right. uh, parity uh, an of it apart maybe. from saying everything is supposed to be reciprocal and mutual right. uh, in in these kind of treaties. So it's a kind of a balancing uh, act, but there doesn't seem to be a, to be a practical reason behind it. Mm. Um, yeah, and the final um, thing that they're looking for is that uh, uh, whatever arrangements come into place, there will be no infrastructure or checks at the uh, international border, as it says here, between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So, again, Good Friday Agreement compliant. Whatever uh, arrangements are put in place, there wouldn't be any land border uh, on the island of Ireland.
3: This is all framed, of course, of if, if we don't get these asks, which we acknowledge are ambitious, we reserve the right to trigger... Article 16, although contained within this command paper, there is an acknowledgement and perhaps this is just an acknowledgement that's there in the interests of being comprehensive or perhaps it's there uh, to calm down some of the elements who are calling for the article to be triggered come what may. It says in this section 33, there are, of course, limits on the actions that can be taken under Article 16. They are limited to specific difficulties faced, are subject to the uncertainty of an as yet untested dispute settlement process and would be temporary. So is Article 16 and the triggering thereof really going to achieve what the UK wants to achieve? They acknowledge the limits of it themselves right there.
0: It has legal limitations on it, but the political um, implications of it might be uh, a bit more uh, enduring uh, or impactful. Um, remember... In what way? The uh, Dem- Well, it's, it's it sets off a, a straight-up conflict between the two sides uh, at a time when you're trying to damp down conflicts, and as this is something that the Democratic Unionist Party has been calling for from, quite literally, day one of the parliamentary calendar in this year of 2021, uh, they have been calling uh, for, and this was about two weeks into January, Uh, for Article 16 to be uh, activated. Uh, Then it could be seen that the British government are taking sides within Northern Ireland. And as you know, if you pick one side, it automatically antagonises the other side. So they kind of would have to tread a bit carefully there. Uh, um, It could cause the uh, unravelling of whatever support there is for the protocol and actually increase the kind of tensions in Northern Ireland that everybody is trying to avoid and uh, dampen down and not uh, cause Uh, any further aggravation uh, or difficulties in uh, a situation which is, you know, tricky enough. Okay.
3: So anyway, we we know that the European Commission so far has has set its face uh, against any form of renegotiation. I suppose we have to take that at face value for the moment the Irish government is in in a reasonably or sounds like it's in a reasonably difficult position to some degree because it it did seek engagement between the two sides but obviously this command paper is going to put it in, in a tricky position given all that's going on in Northern Ireland the command paper calls for urgent negotiations although the British side acknowledges look nothing is going to happen for the coming month at least
0: yeah and uh, you know everybody is being realistic about this When you know it's late july now at this time of year bureaucrats and bureaucrats the world over well certainly in the northern hemisphere are clearing their desks and getting out of dodge for a month and just giving things a rest so yeah, i kind of look at this as a bit like the old uh, chess games that people used to play remotely uh, somebody has written down their move the british have moved their rook onto a particular black or white square somewhere on the, the chessboard, and have sent off their move uh, to their friends in Brussels, but don't really expect an answer for weeks uh, to come. Uh, and by and at that stage, you know, we'll get another uh, round uh, of play. Um, but yeah, nothing's going to happen, really, uh, over the next few weeks. There may be some kind of a, a lightweight, lightweight engagement um, between officials, um, sending a few emails back and forth uh, you know to ensure that the process is still going on um, it hasn't really been particularly uh, friendly between the two sets of officials uh, this you know a bit of narking goes on uh, about people not replying to emails or, or not responding uh, instantaneously and you hear it from both sides uh, But, you know, nobody's really expecting much action uh, at this time of year. But come September, we will be into uh, a big push on this one because, uh, as we said, there is that deadline of the grace period expiring uh, at the end of uh, the month. And you could easily see things starting to uh, unravel uh, that way. Now, one possible thing to watch out for in September is if the EU makes some kind of a, a peace gesture here to keep the talks process going and uh, keep the talking alive um, because there are going to be a few things in this British command paper that will probably be worth exploring to see uh, if you can make some kind of easements that might take down some of the the political tensions even though the Commission have been very upfront in saying no uh, to negotiations. But, you know, there may be stuff in there that could be teased out over a while. So better to keep people talking to one another than to get into conflict situations. So in order to avoid that, you might see a situation um, in which the Commission could agree to extend the grace period on chilled meats out into early next year, when a couple of other grace periods are expected to uh, or are due to expire. So rather than getting this open-ended standstill period you might just get an extension of the grace periods by a little bit of goodwill, but you have a defined uh, cut-off point when a lot of other cut-off points are going to occur anyway. But one thing that uh, did uh, catch my eye earlier today, um, riffling through various documents, uh, getting ready for this podcast, was a letter from uh, Michael Gove, remember him, back in the 2nd of February, just after the uh, European union's very short-lived activation of article 16 um around the, the time of the big vaccine row uh, that was going on yeah. but they w- came w- which back which they uh, remind
3: people of several times in this in this command paper just by way of saying uh, we haven't triggered it yet but the european union did briefly
0: yes briefly for two and a half hours but boy will they never ever ever let them forget no. uh, what they did on that particular <laughs> night uh, <laughs> in the midst of the protocol row. Uh, But this letter from Michael Gove to Maroshevcevic suggests next steps, um, because as I said, they they were coming under pressure from the Unionist uh, party, particularly the DUP. Uh, to do their own Article 16 invocation because there were issues starting to pile up around supermarket supplies. Uh, But here's a list of the demands. One, the arrangements that currently apply to supermarkets and their suppliers must be extended until at least the 1st of January 2023. Mm. Well, that would cover a lot of things like the, the chilled meats, wouldn't it? Two, a permanent solution should be put in place for the chilled meat products. Uh, and uh, a temporary solution must be in place until at least the 1st of January, 2023. And there's some stuff on uh, parcels, which are, you know, obviously that's been causing a lot of grief to people not getting deliveries from certain suppliers in the UK. And uh, medicines, the medicines arrangement should be extended until the 1st of January, 2023. So we can see right back at the start of the year with this activation of the protocol, just weeks old that the British government had identified a set of problems, which we were told earlier this week by Lord Frost nobody could have foreseen. Um, But even then, they were proposing extensions uh, to these grace periods and these effectively transition periods. And then, of course, we heard from Maroshevcevic a couple of weeks ago when he was in London saying, I had always said to them during these negotiations, these grace periods, are they long enough? Do you need more time? Please take more time if you want it. So, you know, who to believe in these situations, obviously. But uh, these the scope problems is there not. to extend them. Scope is there to extend some things. The, the ask has been in for a long time, and uh, perhaps, perhaps you could see a way that uh, space might be created for an autumn discussion, not one that finishes uh, in a big row in uh, late September, uh, but you know, never, you never know, might finish in a big row just in time for Christmas, or maybe a big solution just in time for Christmas, just like last year and the year before.
3: Yeah, the the, uh, the UK is determined to contact, it's going to go on a kind of comprehensive round of contacting national capitals and, and who knows, maybe briefing journalists in those national capitals, waving the command document, which gives certainly their version of the potted history of how we arrived at this point and what the way forward might be. But I suppose one national capital, which might have quite an uncomfortable time of it as the wrangling drags on over Northern Ireland, is, is is Dublin. I mean, what it's not a position particularly Dublin wants to stay in for a long time. This ongoing protocol row puts them in the difficult position of being looked at by both sides. I mean, I suppose the Irish government did have... A sort of a, a checks and balance advisory role within the European Union as to what would fly for Northern Ireland and what wouldn't, with at the same time the British government putting pressure on them to say, look, can you try and squeeze a bit more pragmatism as they would see it out of the European Union internally? And that's just something Ireland, a position Ireland didn't particularly want to be in. So how much longer will they want to be in that position?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a tricky one for the Irish, as you say. Um, Obviously, there's a very big trading relationship for both countries there. I mean, people tend to uh, forget about or underestimate or not even be aware of the amount of trade that Britain does uh, with Ireland. It's, I think, their sixth biggest trading partner in the whole wide world and uh, very possibly um, their biggest uh, trade surplus, or at least it used to be until Brexit cut in. There seems to have been some diminution. Uh, in uh, profitability there and nevertheless uh, it is an important, very important trading relationship uh, for Britain, a very important economic relationship with Ireland um, also uh, it is because of that closeness um, probably one of their better ways of trying to exert some kind of influence or get some messages at the very least into the heart of EU discussions uh, because it's you know tends to be a bit easier to pick up the phone to Dublin than maybe it is to Paris uh, or Berlin or Rome. Um, but, you know, it's a, Britain has a, a big foreign service. They're capable of uh, running their own campaigns. But, you know, there's got to be easier ways uh, of getting things done than running big diplomatic campaigns all the time. Um, you know, it might be easier to centralise things through one place whether that's Brussels or Dublin but you know for Dublin it's not a comfortable relationship to be seen as Britain's messenger boy in the EU Uh, that's not a place they want to be seen at all for many many decades they've been trying to get out from the uh, shadow of Britain Um, and you know there's still quite a few people in Europe who think the Irish are still part of Britain Uh, so trying to get away from that uh, will be part of their priority uh, and long-term approach Uh, to doing business uh, in the EU. But at the same time, Britain is a a big trading partner, culturally very close, Um, lots of uh, family relationships uh, across that stretch of Irish Sea as well. So, you know, it's a difficult position to be in, really is. Right. Well, in terms of creative solutions, a former director general
3: of the European Commission and a Brit at that, uh, Jonathan Fall, had a proposal stretching over about a third of a page in the financial times recently of what could be done in northern ireland that both sides might see as acceptable and i might say at the outset as a caveat to this the the aforementioned british official i was speaking about earlier said they wouldn't find it acceptable
0: but nonetheless what's he suggesting and how does it sound Well, uh, just as the command paper itself has reheated some ideas from a couple of years ago, uh, so uh, Sir Jonathan Fall has has reheated an idea which he'd proposed uh, with a couple of other guys um, two years ago, uh, an idea of mutual enforcement or dual uh, autonomy of regulation. Basically, what he's saying is each side would incorporate the uh, rules and regulations for placing products on the market, to use a bit of EU parlance, into their own Uh, domestic legislation so whatever the british set of regulations for placing particular products on the market are that will be automatically incorporated into eu law and the eu law will be automatically uh, incorporated uh, into uk law um, so that anybody who's exporting from britain to the european union would manufacture their goods under eu rules and this would be uh, certified by the British authorities as being in conformity with British rules. So you're not getting into any issues of uh, British sovereignty being diminished. And the British courts would be the ones who would interpret uh, those rules and regulations uh, within uh, the UK. Uh, but they would be, the products, the finished products, would be in conformity with European rules. So they would go into the European uh, system without having to undergo uh, most of the uh, arduous checks and uh regulatory requirements, and that would be the case now, particularly when uh, you start to see divergence in regulatory standards. So that has a certain uh, intellectual attraction to it. Uh, The practical um, disbenefit of it is that you would end up having to uh, duplicate a lot of legislation and this would tie up a certain amount of uh, time and bandwidth in the uh, public services of both jurisdictions. Uh, And there'll be question marks about whether it will be worth the cost uh, of doing that uh, as opposed to the benefit that you would get from doing it. But it's certainly a way, a proposal of taking the sting uh, and steam out of a a fair chunk of the, uh, certainly the customs and regulatory aspects of uh, this uh, trade dispute with the British. And why not call it a dispute because that's effectively what it is at the moment Of course, it wouldn't apply on the SPS uh, issue, but then there is the alternative uh, proposal that's been out there for a long time, which is to have an SPS agreement between the UK and the EU, and that would get over uh, a lot of the SPS problems, uh, certainly from going from Britain into Northern Ireland, but also from going from Britain into uh, mainland Europe. Um, It would reduce the regulatory load there. So there are a clear lot of benefits to doing that whether you could do something similar for goods uh, going between the two uh, markets remains to be seen but i think it's probably an idea that may well be worth teasing out a bit further
3: right of course in the latter the uh, the sps uh, agreement. Britain so far has set its face against that. Yeah,
0: a bit, bit of a Mexican standoff on that one because they do recognise, both sides recognise, that having some kind of an SPS deal would solve an awful lot of the problems, but we're down to this whole thing about the, whether it's dynamic alignment or whether it's mutual recognition. Okay, other people are paid more than us to figure that one out, so we let them do it, I think.
3: Right, and indeed, they they may be applying their minds to it over the course of, of the coming weeks when, when we won't be doing this podcast, Sean?
0: No, and uh, we won't be doing the podcast. And, and I suspect some of them, they'll tell you they're applying their minds to it. I suspect they'll be applying bottle openers to ice cold beers that they've just fetched out of a fridge. Everybody needs a bit of a break at this time of year. And uh, this is the traditional uh, European holiday period uh, for uh, poor oppressed bureaucrats, eurocrats, and politicians uh, and I think we should uh, not be the ones who would do anything to interrupt this fine, honourable and noble European tradition which the British themselves seem to have uh, no inclination to get rid of either. So uh, if I may propose sir and look for a secondment from you uh, <laughs> that we adjourn this podcast until uh, early September. What say you?
3: Uh, indeed yes for me Colm O'Mungain Ortiz Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin Sláinte Post Sante Enjoy the holidays.
0: And good luck from me, Sean Whelan, RT's correspondent in London. Have a good summer.